Good morning. Welcome back from the Orient. Safe trip. We've been working our way through the Old Testament. And uh, this morning we're going to be in First and Second Samuel. <clears throat> I thought I would give you my way of remembering the story of the Old Testament. Forty or fifty years ago in Birmingham, we were at a little church, fairly legalistic, I think you would say. And we spent a few years learning Bible facts. Not necessarily what they meant. Well, I'd say, give us the benefit of the doubt. We did a little bit of learning. But, but uh, here, here's 12, 12 words or phrases. Do you know these 12 words or phrases? You can tell or call pretty much, if you've been in Sunday school like, like I have for many years, you can probably say, oh yeah, that reminds me of, and you can pretty much tell the entire story of the Old Testament if you know these 12 words. You know about Adam, you know about creation, you know about Eve, you know about their, you can probably remember their sons and sons' names. If you know about Noah, yeah, man got pretty evil, they fell, they fell and he destroyed the world by water, but what happened to Noah? Found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's a good thing. Abraham, ah, man of promise, uh, he had a wife, Sarah, they were old, didn't have any children. But then the promise and the covenant made with Abraham, if you can remember that, that becomes a key in understanding the whole Bible, Genesis 12. Jacob, skip Isaac. Why? Because, well, you can remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. That'd just be one more word to have to remember, right? So you, <laughs> you go to Jacob. And it, I wanted 12. I had to skip something. <laughs> Joseph. Joseph, the youngest, not the youngest, but next to youngest, right? And uh, of the 12 sons of, of Jacob, and he was, Mom always liked you best, you know, the, and all the other brothers hated him, sold into slavery, you can remember all those stories. And then Moses, Moses comes to the rescue of, of Israel. If you can remember these first five words, you know 2,500 years out of the 4,000 years in the Old Testament, of the 4,000 we have recorded. So those five words, the book of Book of Genesis is in those five words. And uh, Joseph gets sold into slavery, becomes a leader in Egypt, becomes the salvation, really, of the nation when there's a famine in the land of Canaan and all of his brothers and family come down into Egypt for salvation during the famine. How many people came down there? About 70. About 70. Could be 75 in one place, 79 in another place. But it's somewhere around 70. Seventy people made up the nation of Israel at that time. And how many people came out with Moses? 600,000 men. Not 600,000. 603,550. <laughs> In numbers, it's 603,550 men aged 20 and above, plus women, children, animals. A big crowd came out with Moses. Moses, as a reluctant leader, you can remember the stories, how... God had to convince him to be his leader. Go tell Pharaoh. And when you see all kinds of leaders in the Old Testament, many of them have big old faults. But they were successful for one reason or another, mainly because the Lord was with them. He overcame their weaknesses because he was with them. Then we have Joshua. Moses, uh, when they get to the promised land, they don't go in immediately because they're scared. And as a result... All those 603,550 die in the wilderness. 
later on, 601-750, new, who grow up, get to go into the promised land. Joshua is their leader. And one of his great chapters in the Bible, read chapter 24 of Joshua, his farewell address where he gives them a charge, leave your idols, choose you this day who you'll serve, but for me and my house, one of those great verses. And then the judges. They're now into the promised land. You've seen even during Moses' life. And you've got that many people together. What happens in daily life? What happens when you've got that many people together? What happens when you go on a trip with your family in the car? There's little fights going on. There's an argument. You're on my side. Get off my side. Don't, don't do this. You're bothering me. Two million people living together and trying to get along. Moses, his, his father-in-law, not Homer, but Jethro. Jethro. Come on. Some of you know who Homer and Jethro are. Oh. <laughs> Exodus, uh, Exodus 18, his father Jethro comes out to meet him. He brings his wife, Zephora, and the two boys to join him in the wilderness. He said, I've heard about the, the Exodus from Egypt. God's great. What are you doing, Moses? And Moses was sitting all day, every day, doing what? Settling disputes. And one principle of leadership that Jethro gives him says, look, you're going to kill yourself sitting here all day, every day. You're going to work yourself to death. Get some people to help you. Delegate. Principle of leadership. But Moses did. Uh, how many judges? I'm giving her time to count. Fifteen. Fifteen, that's right. Othniel Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, and Bimbalak told Jeff Jeff that it's only one Period of kings. We're going to be talking about kings today. If you say it little, you say it fast enough, you don't know if I said it right or not. But kings, we're going to talk about that today. Divided kingdom, we have three kings that are nations together. Then we divide, we go to captivity, and then we restore. Okay. So, what all did I not say that I wanted to say? Another obscure verse in uh, this period right here. In Genesis around 10, the incident in the city of Babel, after the flood, the people start multiplying out of Noah's family to repopulate the earth. And they kind of settle there together in the city of Babel, and they're working together. They want to build this tower. And God says, that's not good. I want to populate the whole earth. So he confuses their languages. And they go on and spread across the earth, live in their clans and countries. And I was mentioning to Randall this morning, you talked about prophets last week. Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets we don't really hear very much about. In Zephaniah chapter 3, a prophecy of the future kingdom. Zephaniah says, we'll call all my people back together from way beyond Ethiopia. We'll come back together. I will purify their lips. One version says, I will cleanse their language. One commentator says, language will no longer be a barrier. And you get a pan of that at the day of Pentecost. Everybody heard in their own language. But to be back in, in heaven... Well, there'll be no barriers. There'll be no language differences. There'll be no problems, and we'll be able to hopefully get along up there. We promised that anyway. 
So this morning, we are getting ready to go into First Samuel. The children of Israel have relocated to the promised land. They've got problems with their neighbors. They didn't destroy everybody when they came in, but they destroyed some of them. But they're trying to coexist with the Philistines and others, the problems of daily life. Again, you're in my yard, your dog ate my chicken, or your livestock wandered into my place, your children are keeping me awake, all those problems. In Judges 1.1, it says, After Joshua died, they inquired of the Lord. They were interested in what the Lord said. If the Lord wills, we'll do this. Judges 21, at the end of the chapter, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. George, is that hyperbole? Probably a little bit. Because you, you encounter remnants all through the stories. Somebody's mother remained faithful. Somebody had to teach Hannah about the Lord. And so you get glimpses. But the preponderance of the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so God's not very happy with them. So, we want to look at 1 Samuel, and we'll do our video now. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel. There are two separate books in our modern Bible, but that division is due simply to scroll length. It was originally written as one coherent story. We're just going to cover the book of 1 Samuel in this video. So after Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, and eventually came into the promise. And there, Israel was supposed to be faithful to God and obey the covenant of Before the book of Samuel, judges showed how Israel failed at that task time. It was a period of moral chaos, and it showed Israel's need for wise, faithful leaders. The book of Samuel provides an answer to that the book of Samuel's story focuses on three main characters. The prophet Samuel, where the book gets its name, then King Saul, and after that, King David. And all three of them transitioned Israel from a group of tribes ruled by judges into a unified kingdom ruled by King David in Jerusalem. And the book of Samuel has a fascinating design that weaves the story of these three characters together in four main parts. Samuel, he's the key leader of the prophet in the first section of the book. But then he also plays a key role in the next section, which is Saul's story. And it's told in two movements. Saul's rise to power, and then his failures. And the second part is about his downfall and his death. And then the drama of Saul's demise is matched by David's exciting rise to power. And then David's story is told in two movements. First, he rides the wave of his success, followed by his own tragic failure and the slow self-destruction of his family and then his the book concludes with an epilogue that reflects back over the whole story. So let's dive in and see how this all unfolds. Part one picks up from the chaos of the book of the Judges, and we're introduced to a touching story about a woman named Hannah. She's grieved because she has never been able to have children. And by God's grace, she finally has a son. And in joy, she sings this amazing poem in chapter two. The poem is all about how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, about how despite tragedies and human evil, God is working out his purposes. And also it's about how God will one day raise up an anointed king. Now Hannah's poem has been placed here at the beginning of the book to introduce these key themes that we're going to see throughout the whole story, like the next one. Samuel grows up and becomes a great prophet and leader for the people of Israel. At the same time that the Philistines rise to 
power as Israel's arch nemesis. And in this crucial battle, the Israelites get arrogant, and instead of praying and asking God for help, they trot out the Ark of the Covenant as this kind of magic trophy that will automatically grant them victory in battle. And so because of their arrogant presumption, God allows Israel to lose the battle and the Ark is stolen. So the Philistines, they take the Ark, and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And then the God of Israel defeats the Philistines and the god Dagon without an army by sending plagues on them. And then the Philistines don't want the Ark anymore, obviously, and they send it back to Israel. And the point of this little story seems to be this. God is not Israel's trophy, and he opposes pride among the Philistines, but also among his own people. And so Israel needs to remain humble and obedient if they want to experience God's blessing. Which opens up into the next part of the section. The Israelites come to Samuel and they say, Hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. Go find one for us. And so Samuel is kind of ticked off and he goes to consult God. God says, Yes, their motives are all wrong, but if the king is what they want, give them. And so we're introduced to the figure of Saul. Now Saul is a tragic figure because he begins full of promise. He's tall, he's good looking, he's a perfect candidate for him. But he has deep character flaws. He's dishonest, he lacks integrity, and he seems incapable of acknowledging his own mistakes. So these flaws become his downfall. He wins some battles at the beginning, but his flaws run so deep, he eventually disqualifies himself by blatantly disobeying God's and so the aging Samuel confronts Saul and his friend. He had warned the people that they would only benefit from a king who is humble and faithful to God. Otherwise, the kings of Israel will bring them. So he informs Saul that God is going to raise up a new king to replace him. And so Saul's downfall As God, at the same time, is working behind the scenes to raise up that new king, it's an insignificant shepherd boy named David. He's the least likely candidate to be king. But the famous story of David and Goliath shows that God's choice of David is not based on his family status, but simply on his radical and humble trust in God. <clears throat> so this story embodies all of the themes of Hannah's Proud Saul and Goliath are brought low, while humble David is called. From here, we watch Saul slowly descend into madness, while David rises. <coughs> So David starts working for Saul as a general. He's winning all of his battles, and he's also winning all of his fame. And so Saul gets jealous, and he starts chasing David around, hunting him, trying to kill him. David's done nothing wrong. And so David simply runs and waits in the wilderness. And here we see David's true character. He has multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He simply trusts that despite Saul's evil, God will raise up the king. What's interesting, too, is that many of the poems of David that you find in the book of Psalms are linked to this very period of his life. And they all express the same attitude of trust. So this section of the book ends with Saul coming to a grisly death after losing a battle with the place. First Samuel tells some of the most intricate, well-told stories you find anywhere in the Bible. And the characters Saul and David are portrayed very real. And the author's putting them forward as character studies so that you can find yourself in them. So in Saul's story, you see a warning. It's crucial that we reflect on our own character flaws and how they harm us and other people. 
And with God's help, we need to humble ourselves and do the work of our God's life so that Saul's story doesn't become ours. David, on the other hand, is presented as an example of patience and trust in God's timing in our lives. And so he's running in the wilderness, being chased by Saul. David had every reason to think that God had abandoned him. That's not what he thinks. And so David's story encourages us to trust that despite human evil, God is working out his purpose to oppose the proud and to exalt the humble. And that's what 1 Samuel is all about. <clears throat> Okay. Some key points for First Samuel, or Samuel, but we're, as, as the, the video said, it was divided into two, just to give it some more uh, readability and to be able to, to get uh, uh, divisions. Where again, on the scrolls, there wasn't wasn't enough room to do the whole book. In fact, in the oldest Hebrew text, much of Samuel was missing from what occurred in the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation that occurred much later. And there was a lot of uh, skeptics as to whether or not uh, much of this has just been added by later writers, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were found, contained a lot of the original material from Samuel, and so it gives us reassurances that it is authentic. With all the issues going on in Israel, the external trucks, the story opens with Hannah, and that, George, I think next week you're going to do a class on some strong women, Esther, and who's Nancy going to do that? Knows. Nancy's going to do that next week. <laughs> it's one strong woman to another. But Hannah shows up, and again, who, who, who helped Hannah form her trust in the Lord? But it shows a very uh, deeply spiritual woman who's troubled by her situation at home. And what was that situation? The other wife. The other wife. And so throughout all this period, think of the dynamics in many of the homes. Multiple wives. Not only wives, but then the second class under that, but handmaids, <coughs> children by the leader of the clan. Uh, saw those dynamics with, particularly with Jacob, with Rachel and Leah and their handmaids, the twelve sons, the daughter. But even back to Abraham, the dynamic in that household. They received a promise that they would have a child, but what happened there? Their impatience caused Sarah to go to Ephesus. She offered her handmaid to Abraham. They have the son, Ishmael. And what does that cause? All the problems we've got in the Middle East today. <laughs> Ishmaelites versus the Jews. The Arabs, the Jews. And even in the in the lessons we have here with uh, uh, Jethro was the priest of Midian and, and some of the battles you're going to read about in 1 Samuel with, or in the judges, Gideon defeats the Midianites. Who are the Midianites? It was a third son or another son that Abraham had with a second wife, Keturah, later on when after Sarah dies. So the dynamics of the multiple wife household. Men... You can read First Samuel and learn a great lesson on how to conduct yourself with your wife. Because there's just one great sentence in here. Hannah's really upset. She's agonizing over the fact she doesn't have children. Penina's getting all the attention because she's got multiple children. 
And what does her husband Elkanah say? Aren't you lucky? You've got me. Isn't that better than two sons? He had not been to the school of husband tact. He had not learned any tact. I'm sure that made her feel a lot better. But she has the scene at the in Shiloh where Eli's sitting there. He thinks she's drunk. She's in almost a trance. She's, her, her lips are moving. No sound's coming out. But she says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm in agony. And he says, well, if that's the case, go in peace. May the Lord bless you and give you what you want. And so she goes back and has a son, and that son become, is Samuel. But her song then in chapter 2, of thanksgiving, humility, and gratefulness about the providence of God. A similar song in Second Samuel 22 when David looks back on his life and the providence of, of God and the role it plays with him. And so after Samuel is weaned, he comes back to be dedicated to the Lord and serve at the temple. And so he's there with Eli, the old judge, and... Uh, is serving there, and she leaves him there. Now, we don't know exactly what age, but it's probably at least eight or ten. It's several years pass before she brings him and leaves him. He really uh, kind of reappears in chapter 7. In between, you see Eli and the problems of his wicked sons. He's let them take on roles in helping him judge. Again, I guess that principle of Moses needs help. Eli had his sons, and they're very wicked Sometimes it's hard for a parent to discipline their own children, isn't it? The firm I was with for many years, all my career, the firm I was with all my career, one of the rules we had uh, was no children of partners could work anywhere in the firm, anywhere. Because the original founder, obviously, two brothers founded the firm, and they didn't get along, so they said, after that, we won't have any more relatives in the firm. No baptism. Now, that changed in 1989 when we had a big merger with another firm. We did let some relatives, but there were still restrictions on children and partners. You, couldn't, you could not work in the same office. Again, to avoid the appearance of favoritism. And again, you're, you're, we don't want your wisdom to be clouded so you make good judgments because it's your child. The first Samuel reappears. He leads Israel to a victory and through prayer and meditation. He becomes a circuit judge. I love, he, he rides and goes, goes around to the different communities in Israel to take the judgment of the court, if you will, to the circuit. You know, I, when I was growing up in Alabama, you'd see movies and there's always a district attorney. In Alabama, we had circuit solicitors. The terminology from the old judicial circuit and judges would go around and, and the circuit solicitor aka district attorney was what we had at that time i think they've changed the terminology these days i don't that's not important but it just that's what i can think about sometimes <laughs> i think about a lot of strange things okay give us a king this really isn't the first time the children of Israel had started asking for a king. In, Ju in Judges 8, Gideon wins a victory over who? The Midianites. 
through Keturah and Abraham. And he comes back and some of the people, not the, all the people, but some of them came, be our king. And here's Gideon's reply. I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And so Gideon rejected their plea. But here, as the, as the video said, the people are more demanding. Give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. And they have failed to remember what Exodus 19, 6 says. If you want to remember some key verses in, in the first few books, Genesis 1, Genesis 3.15 talks about the future prediction of Jesus, the covenant in Genesis 12, Exodus 19. If you will obey my covenant, you will be a kingdom of priests forever. God says, I'll be your king. You'll be in my kingdom. And now they want a human king. And he says, okay, give them what they want. They're rejecting me, not you, Samuel. So they do. And he goes out, as I said, Saul looked the part. Looking the part. Have you ever known somebody who looked the part? Once you're around them 10 or 15 minutes, you saw that there wasn't a lot of substance beyond the looks. In one of our training programs at our firm, we had a, uh, we had a in, in, in the recruiters workshop where we tried to teach people how to go to campus on colleges to interview people to see who would be invited to the office for interviews and be considered. We showed them a video of a mock interview. And with the video, almost to a person, they said, yes, I've had that person in with the office. Because it looked the part. But when you looked at a transcript of the interview, it was a terrible interview. No substance at all. People who read the script said no. People who saw the video were overcome by the appearance. Sometimes it's called the halo effect. You see somebody that dresses like you, acts like you, you assume they can be successful because they're like you. But in a, in a bigger firm, you need people that are all kinds of different people because different people succeed for different reasons because of their sheer tenacity, their drive. Some people are just smarter than other people and they can get by with their weaknesses or may not be as uh, uh, quite as uh, smooth on the social graces, but they may be successful because they're just brighter than you are. But see, looked the part, but it said he had flaws. And even when Samuel came to him and where he was uh, guilty of not obeying the Lord with the Amalekites, there's all these animals running around. There's King Agag. And Samuel said, you didn't obey. But I did. He argues with him. I did obey. I did do what you wanted me to do. So why you didn't? What, what's all these animals? What's the king? Well, you know, I, had, but I was afraid of the people. So it's an alibi. So Saul was tragic here because of his failure. And it um, shows you you can't always go by looks. And this Samuel anoints David to be king. Again, the youngest son, most unlikely son in the hierarchy of that, of that culture because usually the oldest son is the one who gets all the blessings. And it's probably maybe 10 to 15 years before he actually becomes the king. As, as uh, the video pointed out, he had to wait and bide his time. 
because he was so respectful of the fact that Saul had been appointed as, as the Lord's king. He did not want to do anything against God's anointed one. So that's kind of first, first obviously, there's all kinds of, if you've taught Sunday school, there's all kinds of lessons in there, aren't there, that you can teach children from 1 Samuel. All right, so let's look at 2 Samuel real quick. The book of 2 Samuel. Check out the video on 1 Samuel where we were introduced to the book's three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, and then also to the book's literary design, which first introduced Samuel and then traced the rise and fall of King Saul in contrast to the rise of King David. 2 Samuel tells the story of David as Israel's king, and in two movements, there's a season of success and blessing, followed by a huge moral failure and then its sad consequences. And then the book ends with this well-crafted conclusion that reflects back on the good and the bad in David's life, generating hope for a future king to come from his life. So 2 Samuel picks up after Saul's death, and David surprises everyone by composing this long poem where he laments the death of the very man who tried to murder him. And so once again, the author, he's presenting David's humility and compassion He's a man who grieves the death even of his own enemy. After this, David experiences a season of success and God's blessing. All of the Israelite tribes, they come to David and they ask him to unify all the tribes as their king. So the first thing David does as king is to go to the city of Jerusalem, he conquers it, and he establishes it as Israel's capital city, which he renames as Zion. And from there, David goes on and he wins many battles and expands Israel's territory. Now, after making Jerusalem the political capital of Israel, he wants to make it their religious capital as well. And so he has the Ark of the Covenant moved into the city. And then in 2 Samuel 7, he tells God, now that Israel has a permanent home, he thinks that God's presence should also get a permanent house. So he asks if he can build a temple for the God of Israel. But God says to David, Thank you for that thought, but actually I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. Now, 2 Samuel 7, this is a key chapter for understanding the storyline of the whole Bible. Because God here makes a promise to David that from his royal line will come a future king who's going to build God's temple here on earth and set up an eternal kingdom. And it's this messianic promise to David that gets picked up and developed more in the book of Psalms and also in the books of the prophets. And it's this king that gets connected to God's promise to Abraham. The future messianic kingdom will be how God brings his blessing to all of the nations. And it's right here, in the midst of all this divine blessing, that things go horribly wrong. David makes a fatal mistake. Not fatal for him, but for a man named Uriah, one of David's prized soldiers. So from his rooftop, David sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing. David finds her, he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. And then he tries to cover the whole thing up by having Uriah assassinated and then marrying her. It's just horrible. So when David's confronted by the prophet Nathan about all of this, he immediately owns up to what he's done. He's broken, he repents, he asks God to forgive him. And God does forgive him, but God doesn't erase the consequences of David's decisions. And so as a result of this horrible choice, David's family, his kingdom, it all falls apart. And it makes this section a tragic story, much like Saul's downfall. So David's sons end up repeating his own mistakes, but in even more tragic ways. So Amnon sexually abuses his sister, Tamar. And then their brother, Absalom, finds out about all of this and has Amnon assassinated. 
And then Absalom goes and he hatches this secret plan to oust his father David from power. And he launches this full-scale rebellion. And so for a second time, David is forced to flee from his own home and go hide in the wilderness. Except this time, he is not an innocent man. The rebellion ends when David's son is murdered. And it breaks David's heart. And so once again, he laments over the very man who tried to kill him. David's last days find him back on his throne, but as a broken man, wounded by the sad consequences. The book concludes with a well-crafted epilogue. The stories that are out of chronological order, but they have this really cool symmetrical literary design. So the outer pair of stories come from earlier in David's reign, and they compare the failures of Saul and then of David, and how each of them hurt other people through their bad decisions. The next inner pair of stories are about David and his band of mighty men who went about fighting the Philistines. And what's interesting is that both sections have a story of David's weakness in battle. So in contrast to the victorious David of chapters 1 through 9, here we see a vulnerable David who's dependent on others for help. The center of the epilogue has two poems that act like memoirs. And David reflects back on his life. And he remembers times when God graciously rescued him from danger. And he sees these as moments where God was faithful to his covenant promise to him and to his family. Both poems conclude by looking back onto the hope of God's promise of a future king who will build that eternal kingdom. Now these poems and then God's promise also connect back to Hannah's poem that opened the book. And so these key passages from the beginning, down the middle, and the end of the book bring the book's themes all together. Despite Saul and David's evil, God remained at work, moving forward his redemptive purpose. And God opposed David and Saul there, but he exalted David when he humbled himself. And so the future hope of this book reaches far beyond David himself. It looks to the future, to the messianic king who will one day bring God's kingdom and blessing to all of the nations. And that's what the book of Samuel is all about. Death of Saul, as he said, David lamented the death again, very deeply respectful of God's anointed. Uh, as he becomes king, details that aren't covered in the video, but does he, he's not king over all of Israel right at the very beginning. Ishbosheth, who was uh, Saul's king, claimed through Abner, the army commander, you know, oftentimes the army says he's going to be king. It was installed as the king of the northern tribes and uh, David of the southern two tribes. So about seven and a half years, David reigns in Hebron, and after that becomes the king over uh, uh, all of Israel, and then for another 33 years or so, so a total of about 40. Now included in that is the time when Absalom sends him away because of his threats. So all the whole 40 years, he was not king over all of Israel. It's something less than that. The key passage, again, if you go back, Genesis 3, the promise of Jesus to overcome sin, the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, and then this passage in 2 Samuel. This will be how the covenant is unfolded in the future through somebody that's an heir to David's throne, and we see that as the promise of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching the sermon at Pentecost, a lot of it is built on that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, David and Bathsheba, as he says, even though we're forgiven of our sins, 
consequences not are not necessarily done away with. Remember that scene in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? When Delmar comes up out of the water of being baptized, <laughs> he says, Boys, all my sins have been washed away. I've been forgiven, including that stick-up of the Piggly Wiggly in Yazoo City. I said, we thought you didn't do this. Well, I was lying, and I got forgiven of that, too. <laughs> but then Everett said, well, you know, the Lord may have forgiven you. But the state of Mississippi is a little hard to <laughs> And so David was forgiven. You see the spirit, he, he, he's broken. He, he lament, he's just deeply, by that time she's pregnant, gives birth to the son, and the baby dies. And there's a verse in there that I love because it says, that child can't come back to me someday I will go to him. That's the my paraphrase. There's not a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament that really look to heaven oftentimes. You get immersed in them. You're, you're, you've got a idols. We don't want you to do idols. Give what, but here's a little glimpse. David believed that someday he would be reunited with that child. And for anybody who's lost a child, I saw my brother and his wife lose a 14-year-old daughter to cancer. And we've seen as a young man that was drowned this weekend, it was a classmate of our grandson. That family will never be the same on this earth, but they can look forward to being reunited. But adultery and murder. Again, a leader who has feet of clay and got waylaid on his way to being the kind of king he should have been. The family tragedy, again, these half-brothers, half-sisters, all kinds of jealousy in amongst these families. Uh, Amnon raping his sister, Absalom taking revenge and killing him, then running his father off from the palace. And even at the end of the, of the dialogue about Absalom, where uh, Joab, I guess, kills him in a battle, what does David do? Oh, I'm so sorry about Absalom. Joab literally says, Either get up off here and come out and greet your soldiers who fought for you, or you won't have an army by any morning. And David gets up and goes out and greets the soldiers coming back from battle. Very complex man. Leaders can be different things to different people. They can be successful. They can be failures. Sometimes organizations or people survive in spite of leaders in spite of leaders, because underlying them in the family, somewhere there's a strong mother or there's a strong father that no matter what's happening around them can somehow call their family together or a child together and somehow impress upon them the need to sustain that vein of faith that we have. We see what's going on in our world. This, this, this man who died in prison this, this weekend who was accused of horrible things over many years of taking advantage of underage uh, girls. You know, that's beyond imagination. The uh, mass killings. It's beyond imagination. You know, why, why do you want to kill people like this? So quietly going about our business as faithful Christians, even though we may not understand everything, we can hold that central core of faith. God is who He says He is. He's worthy of our worship. 
He is going to redeem us someday in a place that will be better, where we will be reunited. Nothing will, will keep us apart. Yeah, I, I, I wonder about that one sometimes. Will I, will I get to meet William Dean from 1589 who married Mary Brown from Scotland and left their home to come across an ocean to North Carolina and migrate down through South Carolina and Georgia over to some remote place in eastern Alabama where there was nothing but a little copper mine that later played out. They became farmers and here I am. Will I get to meet him? I, don't, I hope so. Talk about how, how will we gather about them? You know, all through this Old Testament, they remained essentially tribal. Even though it talks about a united nation, they were tribes first and foremost. Look at what's happening in Yemen right now. It's tribal. They, they said soldiers who were fighting for Saudi Arabia are now fighting against Saudi Arabia. Because it's tribal. It seems out of Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, here's a wonderful movie. That if I hear that music on, I'm a sucker. I'm going to sit and watch that movie again. But in the end, the Arabs capture and for a short time are united, and then what happens? They revert to their tribal nature and are fighting amongst themselves, and the British have to take over in Beirut again. I think we're over. You know, to me, the best thing out of David's story is that he was still a man after Yeah, and that's the enigma of David. He still held up because of his humility, and he did. Even with all his faults, he would get down on his knees and say, yes, I've sinned. Yes. Had to bear the consequences, but that was true. Okay. Next week, strong women.